the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. The citizens of Venezuela have seen better days. The once wealthy, booming nation is now mired by extreme poverty, caused by an out-of-control, bankrupt government being led by a socialist dictator named Nicolas Maduro. Last week, at an event to honor the Venezuelan military, there was an explosion heard around the world. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro is safe this morning after what he calls an assassination attempt on him. The president was speaking during a televised event where there was an explosion nearby. Soldiers at the event scattered in panic, as you can see here, while President Maduro claims it was an attempt on his life using explosive drones. Fire officials say it was merely a gas canister that exploded in a building a few blocks away. Venezuela's president dodging what his supporters call an apparent assassination attempt during a speech broadcast on live television. And President Nicolas Maduro now promising the maximum punishment for those responsible. The Venezuelan government, the government says there was an assassination attempt against Nicolas Maduro, the country's leader. He's making a speech late Saturday at a military parade. And as he's saying, quote, the hour of our economic recuperation has arrived. Loud bang. Everybody on stage flinches, ducks, watch this soldier and then soldiers lined up on the boulevard below all run for their lives but this alleged assassination attempt was immediately questioned and challenged by the international community again they're uh, talking about all of this without really showing any evidence they haven't shown anything so far and it's the same pattern that we've seen before something happens it is always the far right, it is always Colombia, it is always the United States or the empire, as they like to claim. Look, uh, it could be a lot of things, uh, from a, a pretext set up by the Maduro regime itself to something else. He's made accusations accusing the outgoing president of Colombia responsibility, what he calls the extreme right wing in Venezuela. That means the vast opposition to his authoritarian rule. And he's blamed uh, unnamed financiers in the United States. These are things he's said before. Uh, and uh, you have to take them for what they're worth. If the government of uh, Venezuela has hard information uh, that they want to present to us that would show a potential violation of U.S. criminal law, we'll take a serious look at it. But in the meantime, I think what we really should focus on is the corruption and the oppression of the Maduro regime in Venezuela. For most, the idea of an assassination attempt is only understood through the lens of Hollywood movies and history books. But this real-life example begs a deeper dive. When Maduro became president in 2013, he was greeted with majority opposition and the Venezuelan parliament. But through various moves and power grabs, Maduro has since consolidated power, illegally stacked the courts with his own judges, invalidated the parliament, and installed a new one to rewrite the Venezuelan constitution. While this has been going on, Venezuelans have continued to tumble into extreme poverty, and many are leaving the country for better opportunity. To better understand this and further discuss Maduro and his authoritarian socialist regime, I spoke with Anna Quintana, a senior policy analyst for Latin American issues in the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take us back to Maduro's start in leading Venezuela. The former president, Hugo Chavez, died and handpicked Maduro to take his place. Can you give us a little context 
and discuss his rise to power and whether or not he's making Hugo Chavez proud. Yeah. So Nicolas Maduro, he started off his career as a bus driver. Then he became a union leader. Then he went off to the Soviet Union to become educated. And then somehow he became foreign minister. And then all of a sudden when Chavez died, Chavez was like, well, he's the most useful idiot to essentially take over and continue my legacy. And he chose Maduro, right? Chavez died in the spring of 2013. And it was like a coronation, kind of like it was like known who was going to take over. And ever since Maduro has taken over, so his rise to power occurred at around the same time as there being kind of like the, a downturn in Venezuela's economy and kind of a, a, a natural consequence of these horrible socialist economic and domestic policies. So Maduro was vowed to take over exactly where Chavez left off with the socialist, the hardcore socialist agenda. Well, that's that's exactly it. So Chavez brought to Latin America what's considered to be 21st century socialism, right? So taking inspiration from the Castro regime, from the Cuban government. So Cuba's greatest failure was that the regime was never elected. Chavez, so it's kind of like a Trojan horse in Latin America, right? Like this is what the socialist movement and the 21st century socialist movement has done. Everybody has has become elected. Everybody, you know, they were free and quasi-free in democratic elections. But after that, they became these heavy-handed leftist authoritarians. And that's, I mean, we saw that replicated in various countries in the region. It's hard to talk about this whole issue without first understanding the economics of the entire situation. You mentioned it briefly. Currently, well over 80% of those residing in Venezuela are below the poverty line. That's a big number. Can you explain where they are right now and how this is affecting the current situation of Maduro's re-election and the assassination attempt? And how is the economic situation playing into that? Yeah, I mean, so to have an understanding of Venezuela's economy, Venezuela is the most oil-rich nation in the entire world, right? I think it's 95 or 96 percent of Venezuela's GDP is based upon oil. And Venezuela does not have the capacity to refine its own oil. So Venezuela, this this is a country where oil is essentially gifted and given free to the people because it's viewed as this natural resource. Chavez comes into power and he's like, you know what? I'm going to expand the welfare state. I am going to use all this oil wealth to essentially buy off votes and buy off support and buy off the voter base. So when Chavez came into power, this is when oil at its peak, oil reached about $140 per barrel, right? Venezuela's budget, in order for things to be kind of even, oil would need to reach $250 per barrel. So that's what Chavez game. Chavez was like, well, oil is only going to continue rising. We're going to be able to pressure OPEC. We're going to be able to kind of maintain this line of thinking. But in reality, that was not the case, right? It kind of inversed. Oil prices went down, but also in that during that time, because Venezuela was so busy expanding the welfare state, they never invested in oil infrastructure, their oil refining capacities went down. So now, flash forward to 2018, Venezuela, as the most oil-rich nation in the entire world, used to be able to extract 3 million barrels of oil per day. It's now below a million barrels. Wow. 50% of that is being used to service Venezuelan debt. Venezuela is now going to reach about a million percent inflation rate by the end of this year. 40,000 to 50,000 Venezuelans every single day are fleeing their country. Like they have to go and they're, they're, ref, they're refugees into Colombia, Brazil. I mean, that 80 percent number that you referenced of people living in poverty, it's it's essentially we got to look at the extreme poverty number. People who are, have to give up their children now because they simply can't afford to feed them. Animals that are just that are dying. People who are forced to eat garbage if food is ever even available. I mean, it's an incredibly, incredibly dire situation. So they're so reliant on oil. Even the U.S. imports 8 to 9% of our oil consumption. That's a big number. And for them to be so reliant on that and have such a big social welfare program, 
that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, they never diversified their economy, right? right. I mean, it's, it's simple math. They just they never did it. In response to Maduro's recent re-election, you wrote, things look grim for Venezuela. Put grim into perspective for those who don't have prior knowledge to the situation. Why was the selection so bad and how is corruption playing a role here? So we have to consider this, that Venezuela's government is not led by politicians, right? They're, they're, it's led by criminals. Like the vast majority of the Venezuelan government officials are criminals either in the, or either they're directly involved in drug trafficking or they're involved in some sort of kind of extortion system. Like they've used that country as like a piggy bank. They've like bled it dry. Because in the meanwhile, while they've expanded the welfare state, they've also used the, the government, res- government resources kind of like as their own slush fund. So you have the vice president of Venezuela, for example who's been designated by the U.S. government as a drug trafficking kingpin for working with like Mexican cartels like Los Cetas and like the Sinaloa cartel. This is somebody who within like in the last year, and this is something significant the Trump administration has done, they've seized over $500 million of drug-related assets that he's accumulated. Imagine what $500 million could be used for in a country like Venezuela, right, to feed such impoverished people. That's only one person. So then you have these other dozens, dozen or even more than that government officials who've been directly involved in that as well. So kind of in in a way for the government to consolidate power, because obviously, you know, the economy is doing bad. I mean, all the every economic and every indicator that you could look at as to indicate, you know, why should we continue voting for these guys? They just they control the levers of power in the country. So in the previous election, well, last July, Venezuela created what was called the Venezuelan government, rather created what's called a constituent assembly because the Congress is controlled by the opposition. The opposition won major control of Congress. But what they've done is they just deprived that Congress of resources and they created a dual Congress with even more power. And coincidentally, every single member of that Congress is a member, is a handpicked member of the Socialist Party. So you're essentially saying it would be like President Trump appointing a new Supreme Court in order to invalidate our current members of Congress. And then he went and appointed his own people that would uphold his agenda. It's essentially the equivalent of President Trump saying, Congress, you're irrelevant. I'm going to create a dual Congress. I'm going to strip you, Congress, the, the, the elected Congress, of all of your resources. I'm going to strip away the Supreme Court of its power. I'm going to install my own people there. I'm going to create a dual. Like, I mean, it's every single, again, every lever of power is controlled by the government. The military, for example, now runs the food distribution systems in the country because now they traffic in food. I mean, wow. they just, they can, they, they traffic in people's misery. It's incredible. Since Hugo Chavez took power in 1999, it's estimated that two to four million Venezuelans have left the country. Has Maduro done anything to change this or stop this? Is he even concerned about it? They want people to leave because it's less of a burden on onto them. So originally when Chavez came into power, the people who would leave were, you know, the white collar wealthy Venezuelans who did not support him for ideological reasons. And then you've seen as the economy has worsened. People are leaving with barely the clothes on their backs. I mean, they have absolutely nothing. They're living in squalor in these refugee camps simply because there's more of an opportunity elsewhere than than there is within their own country. I even read an article that said people with really good skills and decent jobs in Venezuela are leaving to become busboys 
in some European countries. Oh, my God. It's become even worse than that. Throughout Latin America, there is now this massive spike in Venezuelan prostitutes because wow. these women who used to be doctors, for example, who used to you know be well-trained professionals have nothing else to sell or to give. I mean, women are now um, sterilizing themselves so they, they don't get pregnant because they simply just can't afford to have children. I mean, it's, it's a very tragic situation. And it's not just a Venezuela problem either. I mean, this is a problem that's spreading throughout all of Latin America. Let's move on to the assassination attempt that was yes. reported last week. So yes. last week they reported that assassination attempt took place at a Maduro speech, and they have since arrested six people who they are saying are um, alleged responsible. Yes. What's your read on this uh, quote-unquote assassination attempt? Is it a, an assassination attempt, or is it uh, more business as usual? I mean, so that so that that assassin, the quote unquote assassination attempt took place because it was, you know, two drones that had explosives and the explosives went off in the midst of this big National Guard Guardsman rally. And it was incredible to see like the National Guard, which is supposed to be Maduro's pride and jewel. Right. I mean, the, the backbone of kind of like their security system, they run scurrying away because they were horrified at hearing these explosions go off. They didn't even protect the president. I, you know, there's there's conflicting information coming out from this. People think that this might have been kind of a self-sabotage, kind of like an attack that they did onto themselves in order to gain more sympathy and to kind of justify continued crackdowns against any divisions within like the military or any opponents within their government. And also just because anytime that the Venezuela, that Maduro is feeling international pressure, just even pressure from within, he always deflects to, well, it's the Americans, the Americans are trying to kill me, or, you know, it's the Colombians or whomever, you know, he's going to close his eyes, you know, spin around and pick an enemy. Straw man. Well, that's, that's exactly what they do because he has nothing else to fall back on. And I mean, it's it's really incredible, though, I would say if people could Google this, the day of the attack, as the military then finally runs to guard Maduro, his wife, who's standing right behind him, is laughing. I mean, if your husband wow. is being attacked, quote unquote, if there is an assassination attempt, you're not going to laugh. So it's there's something odd happening. Let's move on to solutions. You said that the U.S. should hold a Maduro regime accountable for human rights violations and build an international coalition of partners to outline concrete steps to yeah. fix this problem. What should be the U.S. response to this? What are we doing and what could we do more of? I know that's a lot of questions, there, yeah. but it's, it's kind of sequential here. So. Yeah. So I think this is one area that the Trump administration has done a fantastic job. I mean, and they're just nobody's paying attention to this. So ever since Trump has come into office, they've implemented this incredibly strong and like muscular policy towards the Venezuelan government. Under the previous administration, all of this was going on. I mean, everybody knew about the government's criminality, the government's kind of erosion of human rights or violations of human rights, but they did absolutely nothing because Obama was too fixated on, you know, warming relations with Cuba. But then on, on the Trump administration side, I mean, they have sanctioned, and by sanctioned, I mean they've they've put individual like human rights-based sanctions and criminal-based sanctions onto Venezuelan government officials, meaning they're no longer allowed to travel to the United States. Any money they have in the United States that's illicit, they cannot touch that money. I mean, it's it's significant. It's, like, again, like over 70-something government officials. They've also been working with our international allies in Mexico, especially the Mexican government, has really stepped up on this because I think the United States can't go at this alone because this is not just a U.S. problem. This is a regional problem, and it's becoming an international problem. Like Venezuela is now you know, pouring out more refugees in other countries in the Middle East. Venezuela has a narco-dictatorship governing the country. I mean, there's just so many different layers here. And I think what they what definitely needs to 
that we could we should be we could see more of is our international partners, particularly the EU, really need to step up. I mean, they've implemented some sanctions here and there, but I think obviously because the EU needs EU consensus, like all 26 countries need to agree on something before anything moves forward, which is absurd. I, I think so that needs to happen. Also, I think we need to see more countries cooperating on on finding this illicit money that's circulating through the region. I mean, Panama is a, ma- a major money laundering hub. So is Switzerland. I mean, like, find this illicit money and seize it because these guys, they only behave this way because they know that there's no accountability. They know that they have a fallback. One year from now, what would be your rosiest scenario if you had it all your way? For the Venezuelan people to actually have a legitimate opportunity to vote for their leadership. Right. Because there has not been a real opportunity, a real kind of unimpeded and unmanipulated opportunity for them to vote for the future of, of their country. And that that I think is, you know, it's best case scenario. But honestly, Venezuela is going to be a crisis that we're It's a multi-generational crisis. It took 20 years to break and it's going to take even longer than that to fix. Anna, thank you so much for being on today. And that's it for today's episode. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Also, rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next week. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad. 